the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show, a brand new week, in fact, a brand new month. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering questions, Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life this week, questions about Jesus' passion, uh, His timeline, whatever is on your heart. You need only to call us, 210-340-340. 9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, if you are driving in your car, you can uh, safely call us using the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Um, just to keep you informed what's going on here tonight, our men women, men and women and youth Bible studies will be going on at 7 o'clock. Um, ladies, you can watch it live stream at calvarysa.com or you can join the ladies who are here, Lauren Blanton, will be teaching tonight, Pastor Ken with the men, and then Pastor Chris and Pastor Matthew uh, with the uh, younger kids, or with the high schoolers and junior high schoolers. Um, I hope you had a great Palm Sunday yesterday in church. Um, We did. uh, Boy, we've got so many people coming, it's just crazy. Uh, But it's really good to see the hunger that people are developing for the Word and, and just fellowship with the Lord. Um, you know, what I like to do on this program, and I just do it briefly uh, during this Passion Week, I like to think about what Jesus was doing on this very day. Now, obviously we missed yesterday because it was a Sunday, but uh, the first day of Jesus' Passion Week, and whenever I say that, and whenever you hear Passion Week, Jesus' passion was you, and his passion was me. And yesterday, of course, on the first day of his Passion Week, he went into Jerusalem to be proclaimed publicly for the very first time as the Christ, the Jewish Messiah. He came at exactly the right moment, one of the more remarkable prophecies fulfilled in all of Scripture. Daniel prophesied that he would come 173,880 days. Um, that day commenced, we know, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem from Nehemiah chapter 2. We know exactly when that was. Nehemiah was allowed to come into Jerusalem. Uh, And that means that yesterday, Palm Sunday, uh, Jesus showed up at just the right time, and he was rejected by his people. Now, the initial reaction to him uh, was predictable. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But the reality is nobody wanted him to be the Messiah. 
Some were pretty sure he was, but they didn't like what he taught. They wanted a Messiah to do their bidding instead of the other way around. And so it was a very, very tough day for uh, for Jesus um, just to watch the crowd, to see their reaction. And, of course, the Bible says repeatedly in the gospel accounts that he committed himself to no man because he knew what was in the hearts of those men. So that was day one. Um, his Monday, which is what we're celebrating today, and I'll do this every day just for just to keep you um, informed. Uh, Jesus left Bethany, and he cursed the fig tree on the way into the city. You know, when when we think about that, that seems so out of character for Jesus. But he did it. I think it was a sermon illustration, an action sermon illustration, for his disciples. Yesterday, the crowd looked like they were welcoming him, but they really weren't. When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? The answer in that first Palm Sunday was no. And then, of course, he went and inspected the temple. And when he inspected the temple, his heart was broken because his father's house had been turned into a den of thieves, a den of robbers, he said. He would look at the religious leaders. One of the more remarkable verses, Matthew 21, I think it's verse 15. The religious leaders were indignant because of the wonderful things they saw him do. And he would look at the religious leaders and they were supposed to be representing God to the people and the people to God. They had no concern about that. Their hearts were murderous toward Jesus. We left Jerusalem on that Sunday and went to Bethany for a night of rest. I'm sure he didn't get much rest, but the next morning he saw a fig tree in leaf. And typically when a fig tree is in leaf, there's going to be figs on that tree. Jesus wanted some breakfast, wanted some nourishment, and he went looking for some fruit in that tree, and there was none, and he cursed it. Now, the fig tree is a biblical symbol of Israel. And it was just a picture of, of him coming to his own, John chapter 1, and his own receiving him not. And that led him on the next moment to weeping over the city of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you knew, if you only knew that I'd come to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but because they didn't know the time of God's visitation, Jesus told them what their history is going to be. And, of course, we know that roughly 38 years after that very day, the Roman general Titus was going to surround Jerusalem, destroy completely and utterly destroy the temple. Then Jesus left the city and went to Bethany. You know, one of the things that amazes me is that Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen every day. We remember that Moses and Elijah appeared to him on the Mount of Transfiguration and sort of gave him his itinerary, you know, explaining all of the things that were going to happen. The father didn't want to leave Jesus without the information that he needed, and, and he gave him that, that detail. So I'm betting that when he went back out that second night, to Bethany again. I'm betting there was no rest. Not at all. So maybe this week we can all sort of take a little walk with Jesus each day, considering, prayerfully considering all the things that he did, and he did it because he loved you, and he did it because he loved me. As we walk closer and closer to the cross, things get more and more serious. In these last days, so too our walks with the Lord ought to get more serious as well. So tomorrow we'll talk about day three of Jesus' Passion Week, Tuesday. 340-9585, let me get to some questions that have been sent in. This first one is anonymous from our email inbox. Hi, what happened to all the people who died before Jesus was here? Are the Old Testament people who didn't sacrifice to atone for their sins in hell 
like the Assyrians or the Babylonians. Uh, anonymous, certainly the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and I'm speaking generally because th- there were exceptions, of course, in all of these. We, we know, for instance, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, who was the king of Babylon, who, who uh, was used by God to completely judge uh, Jerusalem and Judah. Um, we, we know from his own testimony in Daniel chapter 4 that Nebuchadnezzar is in heaven. He came to believe. Uh, so there's there's a remnant. God has a few people everywhere. But by and large, the people who died uh, without believing in Jesus Christ, and by that I mean uh, in the Old Testament, people believed in the promises of God, the word of God. Abraham, we're told, it, it, he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. We know uh, instantly when Abraham died, he went into the place called paradise. You can read about that in Luke chapter 16, but when Jesus uh, descended into the lower parts of the earth and then set the captives free, uh, all of the people, the Old Testament heroes that were waiting uh, in, uh, in paradise, Jesus delivered them from paradise to their place with God in what we call the third heaven. So um, that's what happened to those who believed, who believed God, it was credited to them as righteousness. Anonymous, one of the best ways to explain this is that the people who died before Jesus lived, they looked forward to the cross by faith. You and I who live on this side of the cross, we look backward at the cross and we believe and we're justified just as if we'd never sinned. Now make no mistake, all of the people, if you go to Luke chapter 16, there's also in that the abyss um, Jesus is telling a story here, not a parable. He's telling a real story. Um, there were people in torment. And so the unrighteous dead, those who did not believe God's word, those are the people, anonymous, who will be in torment until after the, the thousand reign of Christ on earth and the great white throne judgment, then, then the lake of fire will be created and they'll be sent there. But until that time, they're going to be in a place of torment uh, in the abyss. The Greek word is the abuso in the center of the earth. Um, and that's where they're going to be. Only born-again Christians are going to be in heaven. People, for some reason, get so angry with me when I say that. But only born-again Christians are going to be in heaven. So when they went to, uh, when they died, um, they either were rewarded in paradise when Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Or they were sent to the place of torment in the center of the earth where they have been suffering now for more than 2,000 years. So I hope that makes sense to you, Anonymous. Thank you very, very much for the question. Here is a question. This one is also anonymous from our email inbox. And he or she says... I'm going through a very difficult spiritual battle as I deal with a brother in my church. I have been accused publicly of doing something I have not done. But I do not want to argue or go toe-to-toe over it. I do not want to make a spectacle of it because the issue is public and I know the enemy wants to divide. While I wait on the Lord about what to do, the burden of the event has made me very sad and I know that there are many eyes on me. My first fleshly defensive thought was to mope around and feel sorry for myself and gain sympathy from others, which I know is wrong. But again, I believe this should not be public, even though many know of it. Two things have come to mind as how to handle it, my, how to handle my situation. Uh, one is in Matthew chapter 6, verse 17 and 18, when Jesus talks of fasting, to not show that you are fasting but that we should wash our faces so that my pain is not visible to gain sympathy. The other is Paul telling us in 1 Corinthians 6, 7, why not rather be wronged rather than to drag a brother to trial, in this case before the church body. Um, let me say a couple of things, and I have great sympathy for you. I think if you've been effectively serving the Lord, if your heart is really set on, on pleasing God, There are going to be people that make false accusations against you. I have had many false accusations made against me. People didn't like my message or or people thought I was too direct. Um, Just just a a bunch of reasons. But let me me deal with 
First Corinthians chapter six verse seven uh, first because it's easy sort of to, to brush out of the way, and then I'll get to the more difficult emotional issues. Um, he's not talking at all about um, um, the, the kind of thing that you explained. Uh, why not rather be wrong? That's in in the in the process of taking a, a believer to court in front of an unbeliever, not not to church, but to court. He also says that there are people in the church, even the lowest person in the church is better able to deal with these things. So sometimes, because I don't have any details, uh, I don't know that that's the case, but sometimes these issues need to be brought up before the church. When there are two brothers or two sisters or a brother and a sister that are having a hard time, I think most often the godliest way to resolve it is to go to your pastor together and explain what happened, and um, and and you know that way the Christians are both accountable, and I think that's probably um, something that should be done. Not knowing the details, I can't tell you that's what should be done here, but uh, if somebody's accused you falsely, uh, well, that person then is guilty of of a grievous sin, and because they've spread it around, uh, they're guilty of of uh, assassinating your character. So I, I think sometimes it's worthwhile to take these things um, to people before the church, not in an effort to divide, but remember the goal of all these things is restoration and reconciliation. So that's what you want to do. Now, let me let me say this. And my heart really, really hurts for you uh, because there's nothing quite as difficult as being accused of something that you didn't do. When your heart is right and somebody falsely accuse you of something. It feels, I mean, it feels emotionally like the whole world is falling down on you. You're absolutely right in your application of the, of the fasting passage of Matthew. Uh, what we need to do is rely on the Lord. The Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, when you're going through difficult times, think about other things, whatever is beautiful, whatever is true, whatever is pure, Think about those things, Paul says, to put those things into practice. And when we can be sustained during the sadness, during the difficult time that we have. To mope around, and, and, and the Spirit of God is already convicting you of this, so that's great. Uh, there's no value in that. In fact, it compromises your witness. Um, to defend yourself is even worse. If you didn't do anything, then there's no reason to defend yourself against what other people think they know. If you are defending yourself, then the, the reality is that God cannot defend you. Uh, what I have done in those times when I've been accused of things unfairly is just to take a step back and let the Lord have his way in defending me. He did a great job. He always does a better job of defending me than I could do. And the same thing will be true with you. The other thing, and this is not a, a lot of consolation, at least at the moment where you are, but a lot of great fruit is going to come from this. You're going to learn that God is faithful. You're going to learn that he's going to defend you. You're going to learn to continue to persevere in spite of how you feel, in spite of your sadness. And the Lord's smile will be with you. His daily grace will be upon you. So please uh, understand that good will come out of this, even though I know it doesn't feel good right now, but good will come out of this. You know, the hardest thing I've had to deal with in um, my time here, and I've been here for almost 28 years, was something similar. And there were just so many times when I thought, oh, Lord, how could how could this be happening? I mean, I didn't I don't deserve this. You know, my heart and and they should know my heart. And, um, you know, you, you feel so attacked that you can't help but to get defensive and you got to fight your flesh. And one day in particular, I was having a very difficult time. It happened to be on a Wednesday night. Uh, we had a Bible study that I was preparing for. It was probably four o'clock in the afternoon. Um and I remember crying out to the Lord, why is this happening? This isn't fair. And, and the Lord spoke very clearly to my heart. Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 5. And when you look at Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 5, it says this, If you've raced with men on foot and they've worn you out, 
How can you compete with horses if you stumble in the safe country? How will you manage in the thicket by the Jordan? In other words, here's what he's saying. What you're going through now, though it seems hard, you're ready for it. You're prepared for it because God has prepared you. Now you can trust him to take care of it. And in the process of what you're going through now, you're learning how to handle the really difficult things that are going to come down the road. And difficult things are going to keep coming. You know, anybody, everybody who is committed to serving the Lord with the right heart is going to be persecuted. They're going to be hated. They're going to be lied about. And so here's the best counsel I can give you is hang out with Jesus. He's the source of our joy. He's the source of our strength. And, um, you know, when the enemy keeps pushing those buttons and you keep remembering and your, 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 your emotions are going all over the place, just remember, as many times during the days you have to remember, just remember, God, you know my heart. I know what I did and didn't do. You can look at the Lord and you can say, Jesus, I'm not shy about confessing sin. If I've done something wrong, I'll repent. But I didn't do this. I'm not guilty. And so, Lord, I'm going to cling to you. And then you remember that condemnation comes from the devil. That's the source. And when you are dealing with that condemnation, you just simply ignore it because it comes from a source who wants to destroy you. Don't talk to other people about it. Um, Again, don't defend yourself. Uh, When we defend ourselves, it sounds like we're just a little too zealous in our own defense. Just simply know by faith that God's got you covered and he will vindicate you. And when he does, you'll experience and be prepared for whatever it is God had for you in this kind of trial. Again, my heart hurts for you, Anonymous. I know how painful this can be. Um, you know, we all do enough stuff wrong on our own that that when we're guilty of something, you know, we'll we'll confess it and, and oh, I did it. I'm sorry, but but it really hurts. It really and truly hurts when we're spoken about when something that we didn't do. So I'm sorry, anonymous. Thank you for the question. Mary wants to know. No. Okay. Uh, Mary, I I didn't delete the question. It's Friday. So this is the question. The next one is David. Our spiritual gift tests a good way to find out what my spiritual gifts may be. David, this is a pet peeve of mine. No, spiritual gifts are given by God and they're supernatural. And your natural tendencies, your natural proclivities in terms of of talents and other things that you can do, your disposition, have nothing to do with spiritual gifts. Now, God may use some of those natural talents for sure. We got some people on our worship team, for example, who can sing so beautifully and God uses that. But um, the spiritual gifts and in, in churches that, that descend, and I chose that word carefully, descend into this place to find out what people can do. Here's your spiritual gift. Um, you know, that that's completely discounting the word of God. And I know there are a lot of churches who give these tests. I know Calvary chapels that give those tests to people. It's absolute nonsense. If you want to know, David, what your spiritual gifts are, you serve the Lord wherever you are. You do something. You you go to somebody at your church and say, hey, where do you need help? I'll do it. And as you're serving the people in your church body, believe me, God will give you an inventory of the spiritual gifts that he has for you. And as he gives you those gifts, you'll find out what they are and where to use them, how to use them. You'll find out the answers to that uh, as you're serving. You know, if we're sitting around waiting, um, okay, God, I'm going to wait till you tell me what to do, and then they give you a spiritual gift test. It's amazing that if you look at those spiritual gift tests, most of the people come out with the gift of encouragement or the gift of helps or the gift of giving. And, and you know, it's pretty self-serving. Those gifts have absolutely no value 
Uh, I used to use those kinds of tests uh, in the world before I got saved to hire people. I wanted people, uh, for instance, in sales, I wanted outgoing people. I wanted people that were willing to take some risks. And I could tell that by those psychological tests. But certainly we cannot do anything like that when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12 that God gives gifts as he wills. And the fact that they are supernatural gifts from heaven indicates that they have nothing to do with our natural talents or those things that we're instinctively interested in. So, no, don't take those tests. If you're in a church that is giving those tests, um, you're in a church that's walking by sight rather than by faith. Uh, you're, wa- you're in a church that isn't pleasing to the Lord. Even if their heart is right in giving it, it just demonstrates how little faith they really have in God the Holy Spirit. And, and uh, you know, we've got to learn to walk in the power of the Spirit. The way you do that is to trust in God, not these tests. So you can tell, David, that's a pet peeve of mine. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in our Monday show, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life. I'll be back in two minutes. back to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of our program 340-9585 our first question is from an anonymous wife and this is a heartbreaking question Uh, she says my question is how can i repent to someone who keeps hurting me. Short story, my husband constantly yells and attacks my character. I'm praying on forgiving him daily. Recently, I reacted and slapped him. I feel terrible about doing it. I have no excuses. I got to a point where I'm tired of always being put down as a child of God, a wife, a mother, and daughter, you name it. Uh, he's had an opinion on it. Uh, I've even reached a point of asking the Lord, why does he still have me in this earth if I'm really this bad person? My husband now holds this on me or against me that I slapped him and said he has authority now to divorce me. Uh, it's another thing he can add on my list of why I'm not a good person. So now he's treating me ugly because I didn't say I was sorry. To be honest, Pastor Ron, it's hard to say sorry because I keep getting hurt from this man with his words. How can I come to repentance and still forgive for his constant words that make me feel worthless as a person. Um, Boy, I could spend the rest of the half hour on this. I will not do that, but this is so important. And and my heart hurts for you. My heart is absolutely broken. We men can be absolute jerks. Um, Flesh begets flesh. Uh, That's not an excuse for your flesh, but but, uh, your flesh was provoked by his. Uh, And I'm sorry. Um, He hasn't asked you to forgive him for constantly yelling and attacking your character. Um, So I I think what we've got is we've got a situation where uh, he's looking at the speck in your eye and uh, completely ignoring the beam that's in his eye. You know, we're we're told to examine ourselves daily to see whether or not we're in the faith. We're not to examine other people. Now, I want to be clear that you've got to do everything you can to make sure that you don't let your flesh get provoked. When your husband starts yelling at you or attacking your character, rather than engage him in conversation, that's what he's trying to do, walk away. Go get your Bible. Take a walk with Jesus. Do something, but simply say to him, I'm not going to engage in this conversation because I don't want to sin against God nor against you again like I did when I slapped you. You also, no matter what he's done, and I realize what I'm going to say now is very hard, but you owe him an apology for getting physical with him. What I would say to him is, without any excuse, for me to slap you was a sin against God, and it was a sin against you. And I'm 
terribly sorry that I did it, and I hope and I pray that you can forgive me. But then you can tell him, I'm not going to engage you in these conversations because I don't want my flesh to, to, to come up again the way it did the last time. The other thing is you've got to get your value, not from your husband. Ideally, we'd love uh, husbands who love their wives the way Christ loved the church, but in situations like this where that's not happening, you've got to realize that your worth comes from Jesus. He already established your value. And he established your value, literally. God, God loved you so much, he gave everything he had to win your heart. And by faith, that's what you've got to remember. It doesn't matter what other people say. You know, we, we live in a broken world, and so often Paula used to say, as an example, the two people in my life, my, wife, my mother and my husband, the two people that are supposed to love me don't. And the Lord spoke to her heart and said, I loved you. I've always loved you. And then she had to pursue that love. And so, Anonymous, what you've got to do here is you've got to find that your value is tied up to the person of Jesus Christ. Now, when you're to submit to the leadership of your husband, and clearly you're to do that as unto the Lord, and your husband is not behaving in a godly manner. He's not behaving at all like a believer. Now, you don't say in this email whether or not he is a believer, but, but, but believe me, if he is a confessing believer, professing believer, um, he is really going to stand before the Lord and have to give account for his behavior toward the woman that he's supposed to love the same way Jesus loves the church. So, you've got to dismiss what your husband is trying to do, what he's saying, and as hard as it is, you cannot get engaged in that kind of conversation where your flesh is going to take over again. It's very, very important. As you are at home and he's treating you ugly because you didn't say you were sorry, that you can fix that with the symbol, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And then in conversation, now clearly you and your husband aren't reading the word together, you're not praying together. Your joint heir, as Peter says, of the grace of life together and the way you're living your lives is completely separate from one another instead of being completely invested in one another. And the reality is is there's no grace individually. So do what you can. Your husband's acting like an unbeliever. First Peter chapter 3. Read the beginning of that chapter. That's, that's what Paula did for the 13 years that she prayed for me. But please don't let a human being, a fallen human being, diminish your value to God. Now, if your husband is a professing believer, then the one thing that you ought now to do is to insist that the two of you go to counseling, marriage counseling at your church. Go find your pastor and, and, or a staff pastor and get some counseling. If he doesn't want to do it, then you go get some help from your pastor. There's no excuse for the way you're being treated. Just like I told you, there was no excuse for you slapping your husband. If he were ever to raise a hand against you, well, you can predictably understand how I would react to that. So this is where you've got to run to Jesus. Paula always calls Jesus her first husband. He's the one that will love you. He's the one that knows your heart. He's the one that knows the pain you're in. And the only thing you can do in a difficult situation like this is you get close to the Lord, closer than you've ever been. You fight to get close to him. You dismiss the lies of the enemy. Take every thought captive and make them obedient to Christ. And then pray for your husband. I promise you Jesus will put him in a bear hug and things will get more and more difficult for him. But pray for your husband every day. Every day. Even if at first you've got to pray through clenched teeth, you pray for him every day. And don't pray, Lord, I want my life to be better. Pray, Lord, I want him to be saved. 
Again, even if he says he's saved, he's certainly not acting like he's saved. So always respond in prayer, not to what people say, but to how they're behaving. So I'm sorry. Uh, This kind of stuff literally breaks my heart, anonymous wife, and I'm, I'm really, really sorry. Here is a question from Anonymous. Should you fellowship with someone that's a believer but denies that homosexuality is a sin? Um, no, I don't think you should fellow, should should cut off fellowship with them. But here's what I think you should do: you should you should evangelize them. Um, th- this person is clearly not a believer. You know, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, now this is important. If we're believers, then we know instinctively that we've got to agree with our Christ. We're called Christians. If we disagree with our Christ, how can we call ourselves a Christian? And so what you've got is somebody who has an arm's length, at best, an arm's length relationship with the Lord. They don't know anything about him. They know nothing about his holiness. But remember... This isn't somebody that you can be close to like another believer, but this is somebody that you've got to be telling them about Jesus. Pray for them. How do you deal with the passages in Scripture? You don't have to go to the Old Testament. You can go to Romans chapter 1. You can go to Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 19. You can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Both places say the same thing. People who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And these are people that, though they say the name Christ, they're not Christians at all. I know so many people who have, the, 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 the hot word is deconstructed my faith. All they've done is they've tried to find a way to convince themselves that they're okay with God, that they're going to go to heaven, but they can keep sinning. So you really have nothing in common with this person to fellowship with them. What you need to do is tell them about Jesus. Now, if you do that, if this person is a friend, that friend is going to distance themselves from you. But but at least they're going to hear the truth from you. We cannot remake God in our image. He is who he is. Yesterday in my Bible study, I, I quoted the Ten Commandments. The, the, the movie was on Saturday night. When Moses was at the burning bush, who should I say send me? What is your name? I am that I am. He didn't say I will be who you want me to be. So stand firm in this. Don't argue. Don't debate. Just stand firm and tell them, look, if you really believe that homosexuality is okay, you need to get saved. That's simple. That's straightforward. You need to be saved. Because it is it is a sin. That's what the Bible says. They're going to tell you that they really don't care what that means. Thank you for the question. appreciate it very, very much. Let's go to Reuben on line one. Reuben, thanks for calling. You're on the air. God bless you, Pastor Ron. I pray that you're doing well today, sir. I am, Reuben. Thank you. That's good. I, I need your help. Um, I don't know if I'm just overthinking it and not reading it for what it is, but in John 10, 34... 35 and 36. Can you help me understand what he's what he's telling his disciples? Okay, he says 34 he says Jesus answered them. Oh, he's talking to the Jews. Jesus answered them. Is it not written in your law I have said your gods? If you called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture Cannot be broken. Okay, then uh, 36. What about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy, blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Now, 34 and 35 are the ones that I'm kind of like, I don't really understand, like, what. Am I just yeah. reading way into it? Am I overthinking well, it? No, I, I, this is a difficult passage of Scripture, uh, Reuben. One of the things you have to remember is that the gods, it's a little g-god. And um, um, Jesus quoting a psalm where, 
where David talks about gods, in other words, people over you, people that have authority over your life. But remember, little g-gods, he's not saying that there are gods in this world that are really gods. He's simply saying in your own law, you, you see that people are established over you. Um, the word of God came to them. The scripture can't be broken. So there are people in authority, judges, um, uh, religious leaders, uh, um, uh, kings and queens. Um, that they have the authority of life and death over people as they did in the ancient world. And so now he's saying, look, you believe those things, so now I come to you, and I come with validating miracles. I, I, I come doing things that you've never seen before. And you accuse me of blasphemy because I say I'm God's son. And then he says in verse 37, you left out, do not believe me unless I do what my father does. So that's all it is, Reuben. He's using an example from the Psalms that he's saying, look, there's always been people established in a position of authority over you. Again, little g-gods, not calling them gods at all. Little g-gods. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, in a case like this, um, uh, I'm saying before you, and I've proven who I am, and I tell you I am God's son. By the way, for the people that say Jesus never said he was God, uh, they got to deal with, with John ten thirty six. Uh, he's saying, I'm standing before you, and I tell you I'm God's son. I, I've, uh, I've accompanied these words with, with power from heaven, miracles and signs and wonders, and you're accusing me of blasphemy. So what he's doing is he's pointing out their hypocrisy in this. So that's all it is. Don't get don't get confused by the the sense of gods. People will say they're gods. I, I've had Mormons who will say, well, well, even the Bible said Jesus said there were gods. No, we're not gods. He's just talking about position people in position of authority over you. And Jesus is trying to establish his authority, but his authority is validated by the signs and wonders and miracles. So that's that's all that is, Reuben. Hope that helps. Good to hear from you, my friend. Thank you very, very much. Let's go to Robert on line two from San Antonio. Robert, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron, I got an easy one for you. I know you probably already answered this about a thousand times, so here's a <laughs> thousand and one because I haven't heard you. What did you think of the movie about um, Pastor Chuck? And uh, just want to see what your comments on there. I haven't seen it yet, but I want to see it. I want to see how accurate it is. I know you are. You have a big part of that. I know you knew the man very well. Yeah. So I'd love to have your input on that for the, probably the thousandth time, right? <laughs> and not, not for a couple of weeks, Robert, so that's okay. Okay, there uh, you go. I think everybody should see the movie. If you're a Christian, I think you should see the movie. Uh, one, historically, it's fairly accurate, and I'll, I'll deal with that in a moment. It's fairly accurate in the sense that it sort of chronicles from Greg Laurie's point of view. Now, Greg Laurie is another person that I know, uh, a Calvary Chapel pastor for many, many years, uh, an evangelist with the Harvest Crusades. Um, th this movie was based on a book that he wrote. So it's sort of viewing the Jesus people movement from his perspective. And from his perspective, um, he's, he's sort of in the background. The movie's more about Greg, I think, in fact, than it is about Pastor Chuck or Lonnie Frisbee or, or any of the others. I didn't expect that at first. But I, again, I didn't realize that the maker of the movie, the Irwin Brothers, um, that, that this movie's been in the works now for several years, and um, um, their their script, sort of the the, the playwright, uh, adopted or adapted their their uh, the story out of Greg's book. So that's always I thought it was good historically. It was um, fairly accurate. There was some dramatic license. Some things happened a little differently than you see them in the movie. They did that. Uh, you know, this this wasn't a documentary. It was a movie. It was designed to elicit emotion, uh, designed to, to take people back emotionally to to that time that they lived through. A very important, historically, a very important time uh, in the New Testament church. And um, uh, I thought it was good. I really thought it was good. I thought it portrayed the heart of Pastor Chuck pretty well. The one criticism that I have of his role was that um, it may look like until Lonnie Frisbee shows up in the movie 
that uh, the, the church was struggling and, and they had no direction. That's not true. Uh, Pastor Chuck had already been teaching verse by verse through the Bible uh, for uh, a, a couple of years by that point, and the church was growing. It was actually thriving, uh, but very slowly. And then when the Spirit of God began to move and Lonnie um, brought all of the hippies with him, uh, that's when this enormous explosive growth occurred. Uh, I also um, um, appreciated the way they, they viewed Lonnie Frisbee. I did not know Lonnie, uh, but Lonnie was a messed up young man, and God used him. Isn't it amazing? God uses messed up people, and God used Lonnie Frisbee. Uh, and Lonnie, of course, eventually disqualified himself from being used by the Lord. Uh, and I think his, the, the, the beginning of his downfall uh, was portrayed pretty accurately as well. But but I think the focus of the movie was God did something spectacular, something unique. He did it with the people that were considered the the outcasts, the dredges of society. And uh, you know, I know an awful lot of people have a lot of friends um, who were part of the Jesus movement days. I'm old enough to have been, but but I wasn't uh, saved back then. So uh, I know a lot of people who, who gave their life to the Lord during those times. And um, I think for the most part, Robert, these, uh, this movie has uh, been a source of encouragement for a bunch of people. Good question, Robert. Thanks very, very much. And I'll take that question as many times as people want to give it to me. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from... Um, another anonymous writer. What happens when a pastor takes the wife of another man who's a member of his church? Um, well, I think you know what happens, or at least what should happen. Uh, that that pastor should never, ever, ever be a pastor again. Uh, and I talk to a lot of pastors. If another pastor came and said, I, I slept with somebody else's wife, another man in my church, the first thing I'd ask him is, are you even saved? I mean, my goodness, what are you thinking? But it's just not something that, that any pastor should do. And obviously the church ought to, ought to deal with that pastor uh, quickly and completely. He ought to be removed from his position as the pastor. He can no longer be trusted. Um, unfortunately, these things happen. You know, it's amazing. You can read Paul's letter to the Corinthians, first letter especially. And um, it's proof that there are a lot of carnal Christians and uh, a pastor that could that would do this, um, take the wife of another man uh, in his church, uh, is certainly not a pastor after God's heart, and it's not anything at all that um, that that should be tolerated even for a moment, even for a moment. So, um, I hope that makes sense to you. Here's the last one I'll get to today. I'm going to spend a little bit of time with this one. This is also anonymous from our email inbox. Uh, good afternoon, Pastor Ron. First, let me say that I respect and love you in the church so much. Now, whenever a letter starts that way, I'm thinking, uh-oh. He says, or she says, I have been attending Calvary for many years. I have no intention of leaving. I have a question about how we do Good Friday service. One reason I love our church is because we do not artificially make things emotional. But on Good Friday service, it seems as though it is intended to make things emotional. One year, a man was going around shushing people, and I was told to keep it somber. I was struck by this because at Calvary, we're always loving on each other. Ever since I was told to keep it down and keep it somber, and since uh, then, Good Friday service has always bothered me slightly. I know a lot of the issues with me, and there's nothing wrong with the service. My question is, why do we do Good Friday service the way we do? Uh, I thought we were to rejoice because of the cross, and yet I remember it seems like we're mourning uh, that Jesus did. Now, I'm going to stop there. He says he's confused with light clarification. Um, and, and he says his intent is not to be disrespectful. All I love you and Mrs. Paula. Uh, he's confused. Um, uh, our Good Friday service, it's hard to explain, and maybe I'll take a little bit of time on this tomorrow because we're running out of time. But but our Good Friday service, we want it to be somber. This isn't emotion. We're trying to, to respect the the solemnity of the time. You know, we call Good Friday, and it's really the worst Friday in the history of the world, where God was a man and God was abused by mankind when he came to give the world all that he had, dying for the sins of the world. 
It's not a happy moment. Now, we rejoice, uh, Anonymous, on Sunday morning. It's one of the things we do. What we do, and our services are very different than, than others, and I have no intention of changing them. Um, um, we have a big cross, a wooden cross, in, in the front of the church, and as people come in, they're writing things on a piece of paper, uh, you know, uh, sins that they're, they're, they're repenting of or struggles that they're having that they want God's help on and nailing those things to the cross. So as people are coming in and worship is going on, you're going to see this line of people and there's going to be constantly this this sound of, of nails being hammered into the cross. And it is designed intentionally to remind us of Jesus being nailed to a cross on our behalf. Now, that's more fact than it is trying to make people emotional. And when we, we I, again, I, I'm sure nobody was shushing you disrespectfully, but what we want people to understand is that, that Good Friday is very serious. That's when our lives were changed forever. And then what I do when we get to Sunday morning, we have all of those things nailed to the cross, these pieces of paper, and, and because the tomb is empty, I'm able to say to people, those things that you nailed in that cross, you now have victory over those things. And, and, and Sunday is the day for rejoicing. Friday is a day for mourning. And it's not artificially trying to make things emotional. It's simply designed to understand the cost that God paid for our sins. I'm going to keep this and deal with it a little bit more tomorrow. Hey, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Thank you for tuning in. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.